We have been working through the book of Psalms together, um, and just to kind of to give you a, a little bit of an update, um, a little bit of background, we made the decision um, at the beginning of summer to start working through the Psalms, and to start in Psalm 1 and just go until summer ended. And then next summer, we'll pick up where we left off. And then the next summer, we'll pick up where we left off. And then 15 years later, probably, we'll, we'll finish up the book of Psalms. But it has been a wonderful journey for my soul so far. Um, and I pray it has been for you as well. Um, I'm thankful that uh, we have other men that can stand in the pulpit for us. Um, for me, when um, we're off on vacation and that we don't have to worry about anything at all. And so I want to, I know he's not here this morning, but I wanted to thank David uh, for filling in last week and um, for just all that God has done and is doing through his church here. This morning we're going to be looking at the discussion or the topic in Psalm 7 that God is our refuge. And I want to, I want to read Psalm 7 for us, and I want to pray for our time in his word together. Psalm 7. Shigan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjamin. Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it into pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly Weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks for your word. 
that you choose to speak to us through the Bible. And that we have such a precious gift so readily available to us. God, I pray for those who do not, that they will receive the word. Today, Father, I'm asking in our time that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. God, we come trusting that you have prepared each and every one of us, softened our hearts and prepared our ears to hear the message that you would have for us today. That we would hear hard truths and be challenged and that we would hear the good news of grace and be encouraged all at the same time. And that as we work through this text that you have given us today, Father, that we would be drawn closer and closer to the glorious King. Father, we ask that you would make much of yourself today. And that you would continue to transform our hearts and our lives into the men and women you have called us to be. And that through the hearing of your word and through the receiving of the message of grace, that we would be propelled forward in mission, to proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us from darkness into your marvelous light, trusting that we were without you, not a people, but with you, we are a people. In fact, we are your people, and one day you will walk with us as our God and we as your people. And so right now, Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. And you would speak to every heart that's gathered here today. It's in Christ's glorious name that we pray. Amen. We all either have or will hear harmful accusations towards us. And the thing is, when we hear those things or when our character is attacked, our natural tendency is to retaliate. We don't want to have people saying we're so-and-so when we're not really that, right? We don't want anybody questioning who we are. We don't want anybody questioning our motives or whatever. So we naturally want to attack back. But in Psalm 7, what we find is David is facing some serious accusations. But instead of fighting back, he turns to the Lord for his refuge. Now, you're you're probably thinking, this is Father's Day, this is kind of an odd text to approach on Father's Day, but in, in his providence, it actually works really well because especially men, our tendency is to want to carry the world on our shoulders. We want to take responsibility for everything. We want to take to task whatever is in our way. We don't want to fail and we will do everything within our power to not fail. 
When people rise against, we rise back. When things get hard, we work harder. Instead of leaning into the Lord as a place of refuge and a gifter of grace. And Psalm 7 is what is referred to as a lament, which is this deep emotional cry to God. And much of where we have been through the book of Psalms up to this point have been similar to that. But as we work through Psalm 7, here's the main idea that we will see. That God is a righteous judge who cares deeply for his children and defends his glory and our good by bringing evil to justice. And as we work through this text, we're actually going to see five different points through these 17 verses. And the first point that we're going to approach today is that God is a refuge for his children. Again, verse 1 says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Where do you turn when the pressures of life rise? I just said that a tendency for most of us, especially men, is that we turn to ourselves far too often. We try to to do everything in our own strength and our own power instead of leaning into the power of God. Even though He's sovereign over all things, we put ourselves in the sovereign shoes and we try to take control. But where do you turn? When we begin to turn to ourselves, we get really weak. And probably for most of us, as we become really depressed, we may not ever acknowledge that, but we do because what we come to realize is that as much as we try to work harder and as much as we try to accomplish and overtake whatever situation we're facing, what we begin to realize is that we're pretty powerless. And we begin to think that we failed, that we failed ourselves, that we failed our families, that we failed our employees, whatever. But what we see here right off the bat is that David, instead of turning to himself, he turns to God. He's trusting in the sovereign strength and the sovereign plans of God. Because the truth is, David has come to realize, especially through the many situations in his life. Remember, he's come face to face with a bear. He's come face to face with a lion. He's come face to face with a giant. He has faced many ups and downs in his life. But the one thing he knows is that God is faithful. And God is greater than any foe he could come against. God is still greater for us than any foe we will face. There's nothing that can come against the Lord. And he goes on, he said, verse 2, Less like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. David is confirming God's hope here. He's affirming that without him, without the strength of the Lord, without the sustaining power of God, he would be ripped to shreds. That he would be torn to pieces. 
but God is a refuge for His children. In fact, God is our only hope of salvation, so we must learn to trust Him with our whole lives. Now, most of us in here would probably say we do trust the Lord, but do we trust Him completely? Even now, this is something that I'm learning. I'm learning daily that even though I proclaim God's sovereign and I say that I trust the Lord, I'm finding many holes in my life where I'm not trusting the way I should be. I'm not trusting in Him to lead the way that He should be leading me. I stand in my own pride and I stand in my own power thinking that I can do those things instead of resting in the grace of Christ. But for the Christian and for us to understand what grace truly is and to understand how good God truly is, we need to understand that He is our refuge. And a refuge is a place where we find ultimate rest. To come in from the storms and know that we are in the safe arms of God. Are we resting in the leading and the graciousness of our King? Or are there still many parts of our lives where we still try to take control and we still try to stand on our own? Thinking that we can handle it. Thinking that we can carry on, that we would be okay, only to find out we're not. And if we're not resting in the grace of Christ, what we do is we work harder trying to find the grace of God, trying to find peace and trying to find some perspective when the the truth is, is the harder we work, that's not going to lead to joy. The thing that leads to true joy is the rest in the fullness of Christ. Remember, Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, true, faith without works is dead, but we must first have faith that Christ has accomplished the necessary means for us to be saved. And let that be our motivator to work. Instead of the other way around. Because if our motivation to work is that we're trying to achieve the saving grace of Christ. Then what we will come to is at the end of our life an exhausted journey. Only to find that we have very little. Salvation is only by the work of Jesus. And if salvation is only by the work of Jesus. Then we should rest in him completely as our refuge. Secondly, God searches the hearts of his children. In verse 3 and 4, it reads, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemies without cause. I was told a long time ago that Even in the most harsh and wrong accusations, there's probably a shred of truth. That even when somebody is saying harsh things about us or coming against us, there's probably some semblance of truth in it. Now, in our pride, we don't want to admit that. You know, we're 
the definition of perfection, I guess. But there's probably some truth. Well, you know, the, 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 the majority of what is being said may be false, but there's probably some semblance of truth there. And David knows that, and he's calling out to God to search his heart, to, to see if the accusations are true. Is, is what they're saying about me, is, is it accurate? And it really should bring us to our knees and ask the question of when is the last time we've asked God to reveal sin in our own lives? Now, we're quick to ask God to reveal the sin of others in their lives, Right? But when is the last time we just took time to say, God, show me where I'm failing. Show me where I'm falling short. It's a lot easier to ask for God to reveal sin for somebody else than it is our own. Because as long as he's revealing their sin, we don't have to deal with it. But in, when he starts revealing our own sin, that's when we come face to face with the reality that we're pretty powerless. We're pretty weak. which we see as a problem, but it's actually a wonderful thing. Because the more powerless we realize that we are, the more we know we need someone who is all-powerful. And We learn to rest in Christ and trust in Christ above all. We are a culture of people who think we have complete control over everything in our lives. Or at least we attempt to maintain control. But when is the honest last time we've asked God to show us our own sin? Our own faults, our own failures. And then rejoiced in Him because He hears and He knows and He loves us still. In verse 5, we see that David finds himself innocent of the charges. He says, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Even in finding himself as innocent, he's asking God if there is if there's still fault. If I'm wrong in proclaiming my innocence, bring justice to your servant. The reality for every one of us, even if we don't want to admit it or not, is that God knows our hearts. We can put on the best facade possible, live the life of Christian extraordinaire, but at the end of the day, God knows our hearts. I mean... All the time we see people that we revere in the Christian faith fall. They fall to scandal or they fall into this entrapment of sin. And a lot of times what it is is all of that concealment is made clear. So we must be diligent to watch our own souls. That's what the scripture says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. We know that God saves, but it's still an everyday battle of sanctification and trusting the Lord and growing closer to Him in holiness. But God does search the hearts of His children. And He knows our hearts. 
And really the good news of the gospel is that he does know our hearts. That makes the saving work of Christ all that more glorious because he knows us. He knows our sin. He knows our wickedness. And yet he still gives his life for his people. So far, we've seen that God is a refuge for his children, that God searches the hearts of his children. And here we see now that God is the righteous judge, not a righteous judge, but the righteous judge. Verse six, it says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. So David is saying that his condition is blameless and the accusations that are being made against him are false. And so he's crying out to God to act. We can relate to this, right? Where people come against us and we cry out to God. We cry out to him to bring justice. We cry out to him to make it right. To bring justice upon those who have done us wrong. God scorned them for sinning against me. We do a lot of things in our culture that we push off as being Christian as we, and we push off as being biblical that is far from it. But the interesting thing here is that it seems to David that God's quiet. He's not responding in the way he wants him to. David's crying out for God to be just, for God to act as judge. But it seems that he's not hearing, or at least he's not hearing in the way he wants to hear from the Lord. See, God's people must remember that He always hears our prayers and He answers them according to His omniscient wisdom. Do you know what kind of mess our lives would be in if God answered our prayers the way we prayed them? You ever seen the movie, um, oh man, Bruce Almighty? Isn't it Bruce Almighty? Isn't that the name of the movie? And he's playing God and he starts answering all these prayers. He's trying to fast track through it. And all of a sudden everybody in the world's won the lottery. And everything just goes into mass chaos. I'm not saying you're all praying to win the lottery. But what I'm saying is if God answered the prayers in the way we prayed them, could you imagine the chaos that would happen? How often do we, are we able to look back on our lives and realize that God may not have answered the way we wanted, but he answered the way he needed and we needed him to answer. All things happen according to his good plan. Just yesterday on our way home from vacation, uh, we were listening to um, the Chronicles of Narnia. I know you like to get these analogies, so... Um, I have it on audio, and so we were listening to it. We were listening to the, the horse and his boy. Anybody not familiar with Narnia? So I want to start talking about the talking animals. Don't wig out. It's really good stuff. But there's this point where 
um, Shasta and Bree, so it's the boy and his horse, and then they met another girl and her horse, and, and they're making their way to Narnia, and they kept coming against these lion attacks. Um, and it would terrify them, and even at points where they think their lives were coming to an end, and at one point the girl actually gets um, softly attacked by a lion, but he he removes himself quickly, and there's another part where the boy is waiting for them in a meetup, and, and he comes across the cat, but he, he thinks he's dreaming because it's a large cat, but the cat allows him to rest his head, and it's almost providing him comfort in this really um, terrifying experience of his life. And later on, the boy meets Aslan, who is the great lion, is a representation of Jesus, and The boy is questioning Aslan, but aren't lions, you know, terrifying? And, you know, we've come across these lions on our journey. He said, no. He said, you've only come in contact with one, and it was me. He was like, no, but there were, there were two lions at one point. And he was like, no, it, it was just me. I'm, I'm more swifter than all the other lions. And he said, but the lion that attacked, you know, the girl, he said, that was me too. And then he goes on this spiel, at, you know, I'm the lion that, that brought terror to bring you two together. I'm the line that even pushed your boat when you were a baby and you were about to perish. And I pushed you to the fisherman who raised you. I'm, I'm the one who is doing all of these things. And what we have to understand that is in our life, God is doing all of these th- good things and fulfilling Romans 8, that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even when everything seems to be falling apart, God is there. God is working. And He's doing so as a righteous judge. He's doing so for the good of His people and to protect and to fight ferociously for His own glory. Even in this moment where David is being falsely accused, he knows and he's trusting that God will act Verse 7 and 8, he says, Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. It's vital for us to remember that God is the righteous judge. And he judges all in relation to his holiness. See, we begin to sometimes question the acts of God and and the judgments of God and the ways of God. But in doing so, what we're doing is we're forgetting the holiness of God. We're forgetting the fact that He is the standard of judgment. We try to, to work everything out and calculate it all in our own minds according to what we can perceive. But we can't perceive all things. He is all knowing. We're not. He's infinite and we're simply finite. We can't know all the ways in the the mind of God. And so what we need to learn to do as the people of God is to trust God as He works all things together for good. And understand also that all things are judged in relation to His holiness. He is truly perfect in all of His ways. And all of His ways are just. 
As we move on, what we see in verse 9 is this reminder that God is righteous, that God is the judge, and that He judges according to His righteousness and according to His goodness. In Deuteronomy 32.4, we read this, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. He says, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, oh, righteous God. See, in this perfect justice, God will destroy evil and defend his glory. Period. There is no giving way. You should find comfort this morning in knowing that even in the turmoil of life, God is not powerless. He is mighty. He is sovereign. He is good. And all of His ways are justice. He is also a shield for His children. Verses 10 and 11 read, My shield is with my God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. See, because God is good and righteous and just and holy and sovereign and gracious and merciful, He is our shield and He saves the righteous. See, the child of God can rest fully in the goodness of God as he fights for his glory. You know, so often we we get kind of trapped in the the mindset that everything revolves around you and I. And that everything that God does should be for us. But the the truth is, is that God is the most passionate, not about you and me, but he's most passionate about his own glory. Now, that doesn't make him cold to us. In fact, that's a good thing that he's so passionate about his own glory because his entire plan is this plan of redemption that makes him glorious. So if God wasn't so passionate for his own glory, then Christ would not have come to redeem his people. So we must rejoice in the glory of God as He fights ferociously for His own glory. And in fighting for His own glory, He becomes a shield for His children. A shield? It's almost even more than a shield. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. How does he shield his people? With an armory. See, as the righteous judge, God will fight for his glory. He will not turn away his wrath from sin. 
And he defends his glory and he employs vengeance with his armory as he wars for his children and his glory. He will not cease to wet his sword and he is readied his bow and he has prepared his weapons. He's going to war for his glory and the good of his people. And he went to war on the cross through his son, Jesus. And in that moment of his son giving his life and then three days later being raised again, he defeated death through his death. And the ultimate battle was won. Satan and his minions will continue to try to destroy us and they will seek around to try to devour us. But the good news is, is for those who have trusted in Christ... He will not lose. And you might be one of those people that, you know, hate when people spoil movies or books. But I'm telling you, the end of the story is that he wins. And that's good news for us. But the sad news is, is that even in his victory, the evil continuously conspires. Look at verses 14 and following. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. You want to test your heart? Read those three verses carefully. Are we constantly conspiring? Are we pregnant with mischief? Because it's easy to look at other people when you read stuff like this and say, man, I know exactly. I wish so-and-so was here so they could hear this right now. But that's not the way we should be reading Because the wicked falls into his own pit. It's like a trapper that gets caught into his own trap. If we're harboring wickedness within us and we're trying to to cover it with a facade of Jesus, it will eventually find us out. It will ensnare us. Why? Because God is the righteous judge and he is shielding his children against the wicked you want to know if you're not trusting in Christ your words your actions your life are going to be more self-centered than Jesus centered they're going to be more about what I can do for me and mine than how I can lay myself down for the good of Christ and his people And eventually, you will get caught in your own trap. Are you fighting for your glory or Christ's? But there is good news. Even for those wicked who are constantly conspiring in evil. 
And the good news is that God is victorious and he's worthy of our praise. Look at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. See, the good news for those who are trusting in Jesus for salvation is that he fights for us and he wins because of his perfect love and righteousness. Nothing can come against the strength of Almighty God. And if he is the most passionate about his own glory, and that he finds glory in the act of redeeming his people. Do you think he's going to lose? Absolutely not. He's proven this in the work of Jesus. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are so vital for the Christian faith. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves it is the gift of God so that none of us will boast. It is the work of Jesus that saves. And if you want to, to find God as your refuge, if you want to seek Him as your refuge, then you need to understand that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that put it there. It's a quote that I had heard from John, or of Jonathan Edwards, not from Jonathan Edwards because he's been dead a long time, but I heard of Jonathan Edwards that he said that. And it wrecked me. Again, we want to do everything within our power to make ourselves look good and to make ourselves look glorious. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all on the same field. We're in the same jersey. Carrying the same weight of sin. And there is no way towards righteousness except through Jesus. That's why he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. None. So you can bring all of your gifts and you can bring all of your abilities and you can bring your money and you can bring your time and you can bring your service. But at the end of the day, if you're not bringing your heart, then you have brought nothing. And there's such a sad reality for probably more of us than we want to admit is that we will stand before God on the day that we move from this life and we will hear the same words that we heard in the Sermon on the Mount that there were many saying, but Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? He's going to say, depart from me, you worker of evil. I never knew you. What does it mean to be saved? It means fully surrendering everything to him. I love my old pastor's definition of faith, the acronym F-A-I-T-H. And it's forsaking all I trust him. The key word in that, honestly, is all. <laughs> Forsaking all. Knowing that I can't do it on my own. Knowing that I can't achieve it on my own. I must rest fully in Jesus. And what that leads to 
is that the only true response to the grace of God in Jesus is worship. If the news of what Christ has done for you does not lead you to worship, then you don't know Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to trust Him today. Now, I don't normally get into these types of things, but I thought it was a very interesting point And when I was studying. I'm reading through the ESV, but the last four words... Lord, the Most High. Now, in the Hebrew, there are all these Hebrew names for God that sometimes don't really translate as much in our language. We try to do the best we can, but, but this is what that actually means. It's the name Jehovah Elion, which literally means God of the covenant and universal control of all things. Now, if the entire psalm, Psalm 7, is about God's refuge, God being our refuge, how fitting that it would end with this name ascribed to God that He is the one who is in control of all things and He's the covenant God to remind us that we should rest in Him, that God is sovereign over all things, that sin and death are simply no match for Him. He upholds all things by the word of His power. In Him, all things hold together. He is victorious and He is worthy of our praise. Simply put, God is righteous and He is altogether good. And in His goodness, He is also zealous about His own glory. And He is ferociously fighting sin for the good of His people, and for the praise of His glory. And He does win. That's why we must hope in Him. That's why we must attribute our refuge place to be in Him. Not in our own strength, not in our own abilities, not in our own workings, but in God. He is our refuge. And He's the only hope we have for salvation. And He has assured victory over sin and death in the work of His Son, Jesus. So will you surrender and trust Him today? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You asking You to be our source of refuge. More so that we would understand that you are our source of refuge and that we can cling to you. That you never leave us and that you never forsake us. That you are mighty and you are victorious over all things. So God, we ask that your word would move and penetrate the hearts of your people today. That for those who have never surrendered or trusted in Christ for salvation, God, that they would turn to you today, that they would fall on their faces and cry out in repentance for you to save and be assured that you will. And for those of us who are Christians who battle through this life, let us realize that we can't do it on our own. 
that we desperately need one another to do the work that you have called us to do. But even more than that, we need to rest in you fully and completely. So God, make much of yourself in this time and may you receive glory from the rest of our time that we have together this morning.